time. <laughs> Recording live from the Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, this is Booth One, celebrating the art of lively conversation and taking an in-depth look at the performing arts and popular culture. I am, as always, your host, Gary Zabinski, and we've been invited once again to the famous Steppenwolf to chat today with the creators of the world premiere play Passover by playwright Antoinette Nwandu. Yes. I got that right you on did. the first try, which is currently in <laughs> rehearsal and starts previews on June 1st. We're privileged to have in the guest booth today, Miss Nuwandu and director, Danya Tamor. Welcome. Thank you. Good to have you both. And thank you for taking the time out from what I'm sure is an intensive rehearsal schedule to join me today. You know, it's rare on this program that we do an in-depth look at a play or a musical without actually having seen it having first. Seen it, right, right. So we're going to talk a lot about process today, since you're deep, deep in the middle of it, about to go into tech rehearsals, I'm sure. Antoinette, let me start with you. Uh, tell us a little bit about the origins of Passover. And, and for our listeners, by the way, it's two separate words, Passover, uh, and the impetus that you had to create this piece. Absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for having us. The play for me uh, started from three separate spheres, I like to say. The first was uh, personal, the second was uh, professional, and the third was political. Personally, I was in a bit of a wilderness space uh, with my writing. I had gotten my MFA in playwriting from NYU several years before, but I was pretty despondent and and floating and in that space that a lot of people find themselves in where it's like, I'm, I'm not a hobbyist, I'm not an amateur, but I'm also not making work in the way that I want. And so there was a lot of confusion and a lot of sense of floating. And that was the personal and also perhaps the least interesting or least important aspect. And then professionally, uh, at the time, I was a full-time professor at the Borough of Manhattan Community College, which is one of the CUNY schools in Manhattan. And I was teaching young men and women two of whom caught my eye and sort of grabbed my attention because they developed over the course of the semester a really lovely friendship between the two of them and... What was um, the course you were teaching? What were you... What I taught subject? public speaking. Really? Yes. Well, you're very good at it. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes, it was a course that filled many students with dread. <laughs> I'm sure. And so it was lovely to be able to draw students out and, and, and help them find their voices, really. And so I had two students in a class one semester who became very good friends with each other, and then one of them stopped showing up for class, which, just for context, was not actually that uncommon. But I did follow up with him, and it turns out that because of something really minor and really sort of foolish, he was in a catch-22 situation in the system, and so he was unable to finish the course, and that friendship sort of split up. Mm -hmm. And so that was something I was watching happen every day over a 16, 13 to 16-week period of the semester. So I had the personal blahs in my career. <laughs> I had the professional sort of seeing this relationship happen, seeing the way my students spoke to one another, seeing the relationship between them develop and then sort of be fractured very quickly and sort of absurdly for something that didn't seem to warrant that kind of action. And then obviously, politically and nationally, this was all happening around the time of Trayvon Martin's death, which was unfortunately not the only 
incident like that that has happened, obviously, since then, but the one that sort of galvanized me. And so I was feeling very angry, but also very impotent. I was feeling like there was absurdity happening on all levels. Mm -hmm. I am someone who loves Beckett. I've always loved Beckett especially waiting for Godot. And I'm also somebody who was raised in the church and has a certain kind of biblical literacy. So, And, the, and this play is, well, it's described in the Steppenwolf literature as a, as a riff on waiting for Godot in a sort of hilarious and political and touching way. So you started with an absurdist play and you decided to infuse it with your own personal and professional needs or, or, or things that were affecting you at the time, right? Absolutely, yeah. There's actually, I mean, for me, there's sort of two er texts in addition to all of my personal inflection that I obviously bring into the play. It's really Waiting for Godot and the Biblical Exodus story, which is where the title sort of comes from. Sort of. Um, it's a play on it's words. It's a play on, on, on a number of levels. Absolutely. On, on one hand, you have this biblical Exodus story, which is just so epic and sort of has this undercurrent of hope and there's a promised land. And, and then on the other hand, you have Waiting for Godot, where you're like, you know, you might wait for a very long time and nothing shows up. Right. <laughs> and before our listeners get the feeling that they're going to be watching a biblical epic with a cast of thousands, Danya, oh. <laughs> as director, what, in your own words, describe to us what this play is about. I would say in the most basic terms, this play is about the never-ending cycle of violence against young black men. Uh-huh. Um, in its, in its most simple way. It draws on all these different forms, and Antoinette has a great sense of rhythm and of history and of other forms, but the reason why it's so important to be doing this play now and a lot of the rewrite process during our rehearsal has been towards making it speak to this exact moment, speak to June 2017 at Steppenwolf in Chicago. To me, that's what the play is about. It's a cast of just three. three. Ensemble, Steppenwolf Ensemble member John Michael Hill is in it. Yes. I believe he plays a character called... Moses. Moses. Isn't that... That's <laughs> absolutely perfect. Also, Ryan Hallahan and Julian Parker are in it. For both of you, talk to me about this idea of the promised land, which is certainly one of the main themes of the book of Exodus. Yeah. And you use that quite a lot in this piece as a point of either departure or a point of journey towards? I think it's a point of hope, and it's definitely a hoped-for destination for our young, dynamic duo. I also think, though, in the play, the, the words promised land have many different meanings, like the words pass over. And at times, uh, the promised land represents a false promise. I, I often mm. think of the American dream as something that's fed to everybody in, in this country from cradle to the grave. And what does it mean? And is it actually a positive thing? What, what happens when you are promised something that you are kept from achieving? So how are rehearsals going? Rehearsals are going great. Rehearsals <laughs> are going really, really well. Are you doing much rewriting? <laughs> yes. Antoinette just well, finished the be. most Herculean task I've ever... I mean, I direct a lot of new plays. And every single day we had immense goals for rewriting because this play didn't have a workshop. So we've been sort of workshopping the play while we're also rehearsing the play. So every day we get new pages. And every day we would set a goal for the next day's pages. And every single day Antoinette delivered. 
It was incredible. This doesn't always happen. So we thought of a time when we needed to pause the rewrites. We'll probably pick them up again during previews. But we just finished basically two weeks of furious rewrites. We added about 30 pages to the text. My goodness. And That's a good half hour no. of the show, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. The show has pacing. But yeah, it's about a good half hour. And, and no page was untouched. But the, except for the title page. Yes. I didn't change the title of the play. But the breakdown, <laughs> even the description of the characters changed in this rewrite. Added a character. You added a character. Yeah. Uh, did you add an actor as well? No, or is it the mighty played? Ryan Hallahan mm-hmm. is doing double duty in a way that is just exciting and spectacular. That's a radical uh, rewrite. I mean, yeah, I don't mess around. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is radical, but to me it also, you know, Antoinette and I got together before we started rehearsal, and she had these two drafts that she referred to as a biblical draft and a Beckettian draft. True. And her goal was to sort of knit them together. And I think that's what she's done. So it isn't like a a rewrite that changes the play's essence. The play has always been itself. And what I think is now it's never oblique. Or when it's oblique, it's on purpose. There's a kind of clarity to it that was in its bones already, but sort of hard to decipher Mm -hmm. and definitely harder for an audience to decipher. Mm -hmm. You could study it and understand it. And especially when you added actors, they became even easier to understand. But there were still these moments that weren't totally clear. So that's been a lot of the rewrite as well. It's just clarifying what's already been in the text. Danya, what sort of directing techniques have you been using in rehearsal along with Antoinette to help you develop this Mm -hmm. play? As you said, it didn't have a workshop. So this is the rehearsal process is essentially workshopping it in in the same time that you're making uh, rewrites and adding characters. (laughs) What kind of techniques were you using? Did you do a little improv? Were you using theater games? Um, And was the cast... I know this is a long question. Were they very instrumental in helping you find the new voices, especially these 30 pages that you rewrote? Certainly. So we spent a lot of time doing what I'll call the cast favorite part of the day, (laughs) (laughs) which is a really intense physical warm-up. We needed to create intimacy really quickly, and this is something that I do. So we didn't do, I wouldn't call them theater games. It's more like boot camp, where Mm -hmm. we do like very, we sweat. Like we do burpees, and we run, and they they have to get hot enough to do these really great partner stretches that are Grotowski stretches Mm -hmm. that require lots of communication, lots of touching, stretching farther than you can go yourself. So we did a lot of that in the first week to sort of speed up the process of intimacy. And then we pretty quickly staged the play. I would say like, let's do a run through. So I think we had the whole play staged within a week and a half because Mm -hmm. Antoinette would be writing for the first few hours. And so we would just throw it up because it didn't seem to make sense to spend so much time around a table talking about things that might change. And I also, because our process is short, wanted the actors to feel very comfortable that they would be prepared to go into tech and to do these previews, that their physical life would be out of their heads so that they weren't in their brains, they could be in their bodies. And so rewrites felt less like a total mind shift and more like something, I don't know, something easier to integrate. And this week has been interesting because it's our first week with the script pages unchanged. And we are kind of going back to the table. And now that things are set, we're able to really dig deep into the questions in a way that feels more meaningful. But these actors, 
I, w- I want to say they're keeping us honest. Anything that feels false or feels confusing, that's what we're trying to suss out. And so they've really attuned themselves to those kinds of questions. We're trying to assume that the audience is incredibly intelligent. So like nothing, we can't sneak anything by them. Well, I guess I won't be coming. <laughs> I, I need cliff notes. Well, that's and what director's this part notes. does. Yeah. Well, no, this makes it easier. I think this is just like you can't sneak anything by. This is actually a more clear version, an easier Absolutely. version to understand. Much There's just no clear. red herrings in this version necessarily. Mm-hmm. Antoinette, do you consider this play a comedy, a drama, or somewhere in between? How would you categorize it if you were trying to sell this to somebody? Yes. <laughs> I, yeah, the answer is yes. I, I write with a lot of jagged tonal shifts. So we can have an absurdist beat that drops into terror, that drops into despair, and then we'll have a silence, and then they'll start with a joke again. So that for me, when Danya was talking about combining those two drafts, it's true, I had thesis, I had antithesis, and now I need synthesis. Hopefully, one of the experiences of this play is going on the roller coaster journey with these two young men. There are absolutely, and, and I'm, I might be a little biased, but there are absolutely <laughs> laugh out loud, hilarious moments. Jokes that I'm really proud of that the actors are just infusing with, with such craft and such life. And then there are moments of deep, sadness and moments of very in-your-face despair. And there's also a good dose of dread. I think about these... Um, some dread. These, like yeah. in Pinterplays, like in the room, that's something underneath the surface that permeates. But it's not, it's not during the whole entire play. I think what Antoinette said is really true, which is like the, the truth of the play can shift on a dime. And whatever was true in the moment is true, and then... Two seconds later, a whole different thing becomes true, and the tone just goes, and that makes it very, very exciting. And as I understand it, the basic structure of the play is two young men on a street corner Mm -hmm. chatting, Mm -hmm. whatever they're chatting about, Mm -hmm. and someone enters the picture. Someone enters their space. Very much like... Waiting for Godot, that structure, of course. And then the new character that we added, you know, in Godot, that Lucky and Pozzo come in and then leave, and then the boy comes. Yes. And then leaves. So we needed Ryan to come back back as (laughs) the boy. Did you start out to write a play around the kind of structure that Godot has? Or is it something that just kind of happened as you were putting your, as you say, personal professional and political viewpoints together. Yeah, when I think back to that very first draft, I don't think I was as structurally married to Godot. But I do think that somewhere on the journey, I thought, oh, these other texts can work for me not only in content, but in organizing patterns. Mm -hmm. So I do remember, I don't recall when that happened because it feels so of the piece now, but I do remember sort of having that that aha moment where I was like, oh, oh, someone's already figured this out. I can just use (laughs) what, Beckett's, he's pretty good. I could just use his structure. It's the greatest form of flattery. Absolutely. Stealing stuff. Absolutely. I was like, Well, and she's had to be really creative because we only only have three actors and and Godot has five. He does. So it is, it's different even if it is a riff. I think that is actually a great word to describe what it is. It's not an adaptation. It's, oh God, no. Or an imitation. No, it's a a reaction to, or like an embracing of 
Yeah. But also, and and again, keep me honest here, you don't have to know either the Bible or Beckett. No to follow the story or be pulled in. So that's definitely the one thing. I don't want to have to have people have cliff notes in any way, shape, or form. Neither of you has worked at Steppenwolf previously. Is that true? That is true. It's your first time. Yes, our first time. So tell me a little bit about how Steppenwolf has created an environment for you that is conducive to the creative process and supporting new works. I guess I'm asking, how have you enjoyed your experience so far? It's been amazing. It's been really, really, <laughs> truly amazing. It's been amazing. <laughs> this process has been fast and furious. And we came here on the first day and we had a production meeting. We went to the shop to look at this incredible set that they're building for us. And we already had new ideas. And we were like, what if we did this? And what if we changed this? And can we move this around? And how much wiggle room is there? And they've done everything in their power to make us have that. It's the closest professional experience I've ever had to my ideal, which is that design can be live in the room as the script is also live, as the actors are creating something new. The design has been able to shift to accommodate the creative process. And because Steppenwolf is such an incredible institution, they're doing it in a huge way for us. So not only do they trust us and trust the actors that they can handle two weeks of daily rewrites, but they trust us enough to keep this design fluid and provide us new things, kind of difficult new things that we need and always go with us. And they also trust us and leave us alone in the room to do it. They're, all, they're a very nimble organization, aren't Absolutely. they? Absolutely. They're Absolutely. willing to move. Uh, how, did, how did you first approach Steppenwolf with this play, uh, Antoinette, or vice versa? It was a bit of a Cinderella story, so I, I kind of don't like to tell it because I don't want young writers to think that this happens <laughs> This is <often>. normal. <laughs> it's not. Disclaimer, um, young yeah, writers right. <laughs> do not do, do not. it this way. Don't plan on this. Right. Um, I signed with Di Glazer and Ross Wiener at ICM the day before Halloween of 2015, randomly. And by the following Valentine's Day, I was on a plane to Steppenwolf because they sent the play to Steppenwolf. And then I got a, you know, that phone call that was like, oh, Steppenwolf is reading it. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. They're reading it. No, they're calling you. I think they're going to fly me. They're going to pay for a plane ticket to fly me out to do a reading of the play. And that was the first time I met John Michael Hill and Julian Parker, actually, wonderfully, the both of them did that reading. And then I got home from that reading and I was on cloud nine. They know my work now, you know what I mean? So, so now when I write my next play, I'll be able to send it to them and like we have the beginning of a relationship and I was already on cloud nine. And then I kid you not, five days later, Aaron Carter, who I love dearly, yes. called me and Aaron and I had known each other for several years before that and he was like, Antoinette, uh, we're gonna do your play. And I was like, what play? <laughs> what are you? And he was like, no, no, Passover. And I just, I literally could not believe that that was true. And it was true, and it is true, and it's, and it's not a dream. It is, in fact, not a dream. And it, it doesn't happening. happen that way oh my very God. often. No. You're usually no. sending your scripts forever out forever and ever and ever and ever, and ever and ever. You're lucky to get a reading someplace. Absolutely. Even my agent was like, this, this will never happen again. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, I sent it to a place that is the place, and then they said yes. You've worked together before on a play called Flat Sam, is that yes. correct? Yes. 
I, I don't know much about that play really or where you did it. I just know that you worked together on it. Also an original script. Uh, yes. Did you, did, was it a world premiere that you worked on? It was a workshop at this incredible organization called Playpen in Philadelphia. Mm. And they provide a, like a long-term development process for a play where you can experiment with putting some things on its feet, but the presentations can be very simple. So the work we were able to do in the room was very physical and we, had, we didn't have the pressure of production or the pressure of review because that play even more so in some ways than Passover is it's theatrically challenging. It's hair, it's, there's hairpin there's, turns. There's even sharper hairpin, hairpin turns yeah. and there's production things that for me are so exciting to think about like a flat cardboard person coming to life instantly. It's about, do you want to say? It's the story of an, an army wife who is at home pining for her husband and so she falls in love with his full-sized cardboard cutout and in sort of making that wish or that yeah that sort of ill-fated wish he comes to life I'm but guessing his name is Sam. His name is Sam. Hence yes. Flat Sam. Yes, yes, yes. You are a good audience member. See? Yes. I pay attention. <laughs> How did you get paired up for this project? Was it random? Um, no. no. We actually you... met to discuss a play called Passover, right. which was having a <laughs> workshop production at the Cherry Lane in New York. And that was the first time Antoinette and I met. Yeah. And Antoinette, and I, uh, Antoinette had not seen my work at that point, and I didn't get the job. True. But I True. knew that Antoinette and I had this incredible connection. And so it didn't really bother me. I loved the play, and I loved yeah. her. And I, it's kind of like, you know, if it's not that one, life is so long. There are so many things to work on. So when Flat Sam came up, uh, we have the same agent, too. I got a call that said, Antoinette would like to work with you on this one. And so we got to have this incredible experience in Philadelphia, and it was so nice. Like, we just, we joked that we're traveling the United States right. together. This is because true. Because after this, we're going to Sundance to work on another play of oh, hers. Oh, yeah. wonderful. So yeah. we're just seeing the sights, but... <laughs> no, right, we're seeing one state at a time. <laughs> That's fantastic. But and, it was and, and you found that you, you found a certain symbiotic relationship Absolutely. between you. Definitely. You kind of speak the same language. It's almost as if you can finish each other's sentences Aww. at times. Is that, is that Girl. complimentary? Girl. <laughs> it is, it is. And I also think that we have parts of ourselves that are very different and complementary in that way. Absolutely. In a way that Antoinette, I mean, I, I definitely think I'm a very rhythm-oriented director. Our language is very important to me, but I always defer to Antoinette on the language of her own plays. And then visually, I think that I have an easier time seeing her plays than she does Absolutely. at times. Absolutely. I never see my plays. I always hear them. But then also, Danya comes in with this, like, world-class knowledge of all theater. <laughs> like, the number of times she'll come in and be like, oh, read this. See this. This is making me think of this. And I'm like, okay, make me a reading list, and then we'll talk about it. And it's amazing. It's amazing to have somebody who can bring in the influences that are there and that are sort of underpinning the work, not only for me, but for the actors as well, because the work then just sort of gets to breathe in a, in a healthier way and in a bigger way. So, well, yeah, I think we, as they we say, uh, if you're going to have a career in the theater, especially as a director, know everything. Never <laughs> stop learning. Absolutely. Always. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, for our listeners who I'm sure from the beginning of the show have been curious, I have to mention this. Your last name is Tamor. It is. And your aunt is Julie Tamor. Correct. Is that right? It is right. So you do have a little bit of a theatrical background going. I certainly do. And an interesting thing with my relationship to Julie is I grew up on the opposite side of the country. So I grew up in California and she lives in New York. So growing up, I 
knew of her, we weren't as close as we are now, obviously, now that I work in New York and do theater. I would see her a few times a year and see her work as a kid. But growing up, I didn't actually think I was going to do this, which is strange to think because I had this model in my family of like how it could work out. But it's been amazing. I've assisted her a few times, and she's got an incredible eagle eye for detail. And that has definitely, I've absorbed that, um, and that's been incredible. And she also has a great ear for language. So it's been incredible to have her in my life. But in my formative years, I would say my parents, I have to give it up to them because they brought me to the theater they kind of dragged me to the theater. I didn't always like it. And to classical music and to museums, you know, they're both physicians, but my mom is like a secret painter and my dad is a secret musician. And so, (laughs) so I had all these incredible influences and they took me to the theater as a kid. And I think that that was super important Mm. to this like open world thing that that, um, Antoinette is talking about. This brings me to a question that I've asked uh, a number of our guests before on this program. And you're you're both young women. You've got years and years of great stuff ahead of you. And you mentioned your formative years. I I imagine you're still in your formative formative years. I meant like, you know, in terms of Freud. So so you were teaching for a time as well. If you could do any other profession other than in the theater, if you had to choose and you could be qualified for it, what would you like to do, Antoinette? That's actually interesting that you asked that because, I mean, I was a professor. I was a professor for several years. So I I don't think I can say professor again because I'm a little burnt out on that. But before I started writing Passover, when I was in my sort of personal funk, I did actually give up. I went on interviews for advertising because I thought, okay, I have all of this storytelling knowledge that doesn't transfer to very many places. I've kind of boxed myself in. And so I went on two or three interviews thinking that maybe I could tell the story of a product or something like that. I was like, I don't know. How do you, you know, how do you use this information? I don't know if I would like it or I don't know if I would be good at it, but I did sort of pull that trigger, actually. Mm. Yeah, so maybe advertising. How about know. you, Danya? You've um, had time to think. This yeah. is right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've gone through a couple. There's a couple options in my mind. I mean, at school, for undergrad, I studied public health, and I never took enough courses to become a doctor, and I don't know if that's really what I, what I would want to be, but something in, in the public health sector would be very interesting I also think that my, my parents joke that I should be a judge. Ah. <laughs> um, you should be a judge. That, can, that, that's, that was my calling. I should, that's what I should have been. That's can one so actually funny. aspire to that? I guess you have to be a lawyer first, yeah, and then you and have I wouldn't, to I wouldn't either get appointed that. or run for office yeah. or something. I think I could be happy doing, doing that kind of work, doing like psychological work abroad, traveling. You know, part of what I do with theater is is go work in places that don't have great access to theater because it's an incredible social tool. It's such a equalizer. I've done a lot of work in South America. And I, I see by uh, some of the notes that I was able to acquire that you've uh, worked in Ecuador and yeah, Slovakia. and Slovakia. And that kind of work, you know, I know that that's still directing theater, but it's in such a different capacity. Mm-hmm. And that... I would, I would be, I think part of me would be happy to do that all the time. It's definitely what feeds my work. And actually, a play like Passover, for me, it's an incredible, you know, synthesis of, of all of my passions, of public health, of public service, of theater, at an institution like Steppenwolf. It mm-hmm. kind of ticks all these boxes. 
but I didn't really answer your question. I no, think, you, I think no, I would you be, sort of have. I, I think I, if I was something totally different, I would probably be a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> well, that just came out of nowhere. That's, That's the real answer, I think. Right. If, I would, if I was really going to leave it now and go pursue something else seriously right. that had nothing to do with theater, not that psychiatry hmm. doesn't. I hmm. mean... That's well, probably what I would do. Yeah. Interesting. You're doing a new play as well in February, I believe, something yes. called Breach. Yes. It's going to be at the Victory Gardens yes. Theater, also here in Chicago. Absolutely. W- what can you tell us about that play? That's a slightly older play than Passover. So I wrote that one before I wrote this one. And then, yeah, it was just, I mean, again, the hits just sort of kept coming after Passover was decided then I got this wonderful invitation from Che Yu and Isaac Gomez inviting me to uh, Victory Gardens has a summer festival for new plays called Ignition and at that point I was just like oh my gosh Breach like somebody somebody read after like the Breach was my play that got all of the no's when I first wrote it and so then you know you put it in a drawer and then you write the next thing and the next thing and you're like okay whatever so I was like what they read it and they liked it like they they kind of reminded me that it existed and so we did last August we did the the Ignition Festival and it was great and it got a great response and then I was in LA a couple of weeks later and Che called me up and he was like I have some notes for you and I was like oh that's so generous of you like you're gonna give me notes on my play thank you so much and then once again he was just like and we're gonna produce it what wow <laughs> you have to be kidding me you're the so, luckiest person in the I world I mean yes Yes, she I also am. works her butt off. True. And she's a True. brilliant, well, brilliant woman. Uh, you know, you make your own luck Absolutely. a lot of times. I, I'll take it. I'll uh, take as it. they say in the, in the sports world, the more I practice, the luckier I get. That's true. Danya, you're also noted as a translator. True. Do you translate from Spanish or I French? I translate from Spanish to English, and I translate with an incredible couple, Anna Graham and Antonio Vega. This, they're They're not just actors, they're actors. She's a costume designer and a director. He's a writer and makes puppets. They're kind of this incredible couple that I met. They live part-time in uh, Mexico City and part-time in New York, and they were the ones who sort of encouraged me to do it. And so I've translated all the plays you see, I've translated with them, which is incredible. And I also think has made me a much better director and fed into this understanding of language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you consider when you're translating something you have, you give up rhythm for to gain content or context for. And so what are you willing to sacrifice for somebody else? And, and that kind of, you're doing that when you're directing too, in a way, even if you aren't changing words. Have you directed a piece that you've also translated? I have. The first play I did in New York, it's called I Hate Fucking Mexicans Mm -hmm. by Luis Enrique Gutierrez Ortiz Monasterio. Incredible Mexican playwright who's, this is the first time his work had been done in English in the U.S. Um, So I translated that play and directed it at the Flea Theater in New York City. Awesome. If either of you could apprentice with someone, really seriously apprentice, who might that be and why? You answer first this time. I want yeah, time I got to it. Done I would got apprentice it. with this director named and theater maker designer named Romeo Castellucci. He's Italian and he works in Italy with his wife and this huge company that they have, and they make work from the ground up. He does riffs on classic texts. I saw I saw a version of Julius Caesar he did last year. That was forty five minutes called Spare Parts. Brutus wasn't even in it at all. And it featured some actors who were disabled. One actor had had a tracheotomy, so he didn't have vocal cords, but he was playing Mark Antony, this incredible speaker. 
And so he takes work and he also is very inclusive and brings in performers who might not normally be considered and, and showcases their talent. I saw an incredible piece he did in New Jersey called Go Down Moses that was sort of about all human history. And so he, he and other Europeans, but his work more than any of the work I've seen is so vast. You know, America is the land of the playwright, not of the director. So that kind of mm. career is so elusive here. There's a few places that nurture it. I definitely think that Anna Shapiro is somebody who nurtures directors. Mm. But that kind of large-scale work from the ground up, I think Jim Nicola at New York Theatre Workshop is somebody who tries to cultivate it. But because there's no government interest in it, it's harder here. But I would love to go spend six months with Romeo Castellucci, if you're listening. <laughs> oh, I think he's a subscriber. I'm looking at our producer. Yeah, yes. If he's not, he will be. All right, nice. Antoinette, you've had time to think this time. Do you have someone that you would love to uh, apprentice with? I think it would probably be Carol Churchill. Oh, great answer. Because of the way she's made theater and just how interested I am in a devised process in a process that sort of begins with real-world research. I like the beautiful idea of going to a place and investigating that place and researching the themes, political or otherwise, that come out of that place, and then devising the work and putting the work on for those people. Um, I think it's something akin to maybe what regional theater started out as. Thinking of a play that was made for a specific group of people mm. in a specific place. Mm. Not to say that, and I think that we are achieving a lot of that, like Danya said, I do think that Passover has been rewritten for this moment and in time. But We're following the European model. We are, we are <laughs> following the European model, but there's just something so b beautiful about the, that devising way of, of getting everybody involved, all hands on deck. I've done a Carol Churchill play. I, oh, I was a stage amazing. manager uh, for many, many years, and I did a Carol Churchill play with Michael Greif. Michael oh, Greif wow. directed. So oh, lovely. that's kind of an apprenticeship that I Absolutely. had. I, I've worked with some wonderful, wonderful directors and playwrights. Those are terrific answers. We're going to hear probably some ambient noise very soon because we're recording this just outside of the upstairs lobby of the main theater at Steppenwolf and the production of Linda Vista, uh, Tracy Letts's new play. Uh, they have a 7.30 performance tonight. Yes. So we're going to hear the crowd in, in just a minute. Uh, is there anything about Passover that you would like to let us know that we haven't discussed? It's required viewing as a citizen of America in 2017. <laughs> you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Required viewing, get your tickets. Well, now. it's in rehearsal. <laughs> and, and lastly, I just want to hear, what did you do in rehearsal today? How did the rehearsal process go today? Today. Today. Yeah, take us through from this morning until this rehearsal? evening. Today, somebody came in and filmed B-roll. So we did the first part of the play. And now this is our first week with pages locked. So we worked on Ryan's scenes. Ryan is the stranger, the intruder, the disruptor. And I feel like he's kind of gotten the short end of the stick because I've been creating this like really nice, intimate partnership with Julian and John. So we spent the first four hours working with Ryan to give him the same kind of detail attention that his character needs. Because in a lot of ways, the reason why we couldn't is because his character was the one who's developed the most. Mm -hmm. So that was a really satisfying. We did a lot of that on our feet. We returned to the table in ways that we haven't. And then we ended the day trying to get this. We had, there's a section of the play in the second act. It, it's, it's 
straight through no intermission, but we still refer to Act One and Two. But there's a portion that is incredibly Beckettian, and we are trying to get our vibe right. So we spent the last two hours working on this kind of like physical comedy, clowning, rhythm, relational experience for those two. Have you had many visitors to the rehearsal room to see run-throughs and things, and have they found the laughter in all the right places? We've had some. Some people have laughed. We have our first crew coming in on Thursday, which Mm -hmm. will be amazing. Now Mm -hmm. is the time that people, I'm going to start inviting lots and lots of people in because this play is made for the audience. We're really thinking about them all the time, and I think these first few previews are going to be amazing for us, and I think we're going to have that first taste on Thursday when the Steppenwolf staff comes in and our designers come in to see the first run-through. We've run it for ourselves and mm-hmm. for stage management, and they still laugh, even though it's been a couple <laughs> of years. Yeah, they do. They do. We had and some we had, understudies in today who had no time. idea about any of the changes, and they laughed, which was very satisfying. Yes. I was like, oh, good. This is funny. Yeah. Well, Passover is a premiering here at the Steppenwolf Theater. You start previews on June 1st, and it runs through July 9th. So that's a good long time. Mm-hmm. People have a great opportunity to see it. It's in the upstairs theater here mm-hmm. at Steppenwolf. And before and after the show, have you guys hung out at the front bar much? Uh, the new front bar? This is an incredible thing. Anna Shapiro is a genius. Yeah. I mean, I think that creating a space, an all-day space that exists for the theater, but also independent of the theater, is incredible. And it's so gorgeous to be in. And Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we love it. Yeah. Love so Come just for get a drink. You can front grab or. a drink or some light fare before or after the show. You'll need it after. You'll definitely need You'll it definitely after. You'll definitely need it after. Get a drink after. Get a drink. You can go to front-bar.com to find out more information about that. And certainly you can go to the steppenwolf.org website to find out more information about Passover. I don't know what else there is to say. We've, we've covered uh, Passover pretty well. We um, have. We have. I appreciate the time, both of you, uh, Antoinette, Danya. Best of luck with this project. Uh, You are so fortunate to be doing it here in such a supportive, safe, and well, popular environment. You know, people people love coming to the theater at Steppenwolf. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. wonderful. Uh, They don't feel like they have to go because Mm -hmm. it's the thing to do. They come because they want to be here, and you're going to have a wonderful, wonderful run. I can't wait to see it. Uh, I hope to to come to uh, one of the previews or shortly after opening. Great. Amazing. Thank you both again. Thank you. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski saying, keep listening, and so long until next time. 